Uh, we like you, we'll admit you if you wanna come, but there's no jobs in astronomy right now for new people, so you might wanna consider a different field. But I looked at that and said, this is perfect. Hi, I'm Cosmo Calloway. And I'm Eliana Stanford, and you're listening to Full Steam Ahead. Full Steam Ahead is a student-led podcast where we talk with thought leaders in the STEAM field to pick apart their origins in order to further understand the motivations behind their accomplishments in the hopes that they can provide fuel for the next generation of STEAM students. In today's episode, we're sitting down with Dr. Kenneth G. Carpenter. Dr. Carpenter is currently a Hubble Space Telescope Operations Project Scientist and the Ground System Scientist for WFIRST. On top of that, he leads the Stellar Imager Vision Mission Concept Development, which captures images of stars similar to our Sun with impeccable precision at over 200 times the resolution of the Hubble Space Telescope. From chromospheres and ultraviolet spectroscopy to winds and circumstellar shells of cool stars, he's done it all. And if you don't know what any of those words mean, there is no better person to explain it than Dr. Carpenter himself. In short, Dr. Carpenter is an incredibly accomplished astrophysicist. He has a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in astronomy. Not to mention that he has received 30 awards at NASA alone. His WFIRST project is on track to be out of this world, as it is a telescope that has imaging capabilities 100 times larger than that of the Hubble Space Telescope, all in order to solve questions pertaining to dark energy, exoplanets, and infrared astrophysics phenomena. Please put your hands together for Dr. Carpenter. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And thank you. Can I hire you two as my press agent? I mean, I don't think I ever get that good an introduction. (laughs) Much appreciated. I think you've oversold me though. This could be a hard act to follow. (laughs) One thing I will mention immediately though, breaking news is that the W First Telescope has been renamed in honor of Nancy Grace Roman. Uh, So it's now the Roman Space Telescope uh, for short. Uh, but it's uh, Nancy Grace Roman was one of the first women in NASA back in the early 60s, almost right after it was formed. And she was uh, crucial to developing um, space science at NASA and in pushing through the International Ultraviolet Explorer, the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, orbiting solar observatory, orbiting astronomical observatory. So uh, it was incredibly appropriate to name the telescope in her honor. So we're all in this phase now where we're trying to say W for, no, no, Roman Space Telescope. <laughs> so I'll start it off here and, 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 and try to keep that in, in mind. <laughs> we'll, we'll try and keep it going for you as well, for sure. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sounds good. Um, I, I'm so sorry, give me one second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, one of my parents barged into my room accidentally, but we powered through it. I'm so sorry about that. I mean, we're all having these little Zoom interruptions right now. It's likely to happen here too. Well, I mean, I I guess on that topic, there's a perfect transition. Um, You know, with with life in quarantine now, what have you been up to for the past few months? Well, uh, we've actually been uh, fortunate to be uh, very busy. A lot of uh, the scientists and engineers can work from home pretty well. Um, And I think most of us find that we're working, if anything, more at home. Uh, we have more available time because we're not spending time commuting. So it's, uh, and that most of my days are just filled with video cons one after another uh, all day. Occasionally we get some breaks and that's when I sit down and do some, some real work. I've been writing proposals, actually a co-investigator on 
uh, one proposal to the NASA astrophysics uh, data uh, program, um, another one into what's called NIAC, which is really kind of cool. It's NASA Innovative um, uh, Concepts Program. And it's, uh, the, the idea is to fund some studies to look at wild, way out there, uh, visionary ideas. So it's gonna be hard to get this. I mean, I'm proposing for it, I'm just saying I've, I've got it. But um, we're gonna look at, at putting an interferometric telescope on the, on the moon. That's what we're proposing to do. We'll see if it happens, but um, it's things like that, which are sprinkled in between the day-to-day -day work that I do on Hubble and the Roman Space Telescope that really add a, a little bit of, of zip to, to the everyday, because, uh, and you never know, you write proposals and a lot of them don't get accepted. It's very competitive to do things like that, but it's all very exciting while you're allowed to dream big like that. And we always hope every once in a while something comes back and you get a chance to uh, do it. And that's where that stellar imager that you mentioned earlier came out of an opportunity like that, where we uh, proposed to study building a large interferometer in space. And um, you know, very pleasant surprise that we got funded. We were able to do like a year and a half study uh, to figure out how we could put 30 one meter diameter mirrors in space, get them to formation fly together like the Blue Angels, uh, point accurately at a target and then direct their light beams simultaneously to a, a hub spacecraft that would combine them all together and create images. So I, I really enjoy when I have a chance to do something like that. Uh, that being said, I love what I do for uh, Hubble and W first um, as well. So it's, it's nice to be able to mix it up, but have that core program work on Hubble, which I've been doing for many years now. Uh, there's you know, the base of operations as it were. Well, it, it sounds like your quarantine days are, are productive to say the least. Um, and you know, I think for Eliana and I, we've kind of been struggling to maintain that balance between like productivity and also kind of just finding our own passions and, and you know, being, you know, maybe taking up hobbies and things like that. So, right. I mean, for example, I've been trying to improve my culinary skills a little bit. I've made some, some beer bread and some pasta here and there. Um, but, um, you know, for you, have you been doing any hobbies in the meantime? Well, I have an have ongoing interest in photography. So one thing that the... Um, stay-at-home order has allowed me to do is spend a little more time or organizing uh, my photos, getting them into albums, trying to select out some good ones. Um, I am a, a huge enthusiast for both uh, Disney uh, and the New York World's Fair, in particular the 1964-65 version, um, but uh, at some degree all of them. So there have been weekly sessions on Saturday where a World's Fair historian that I know, um, Bill Cotter, has been doing these Zoom presentations on a given fair. And he'll spend you know, that day on New York 64, New York 1939, Chicago, uh, you know, uh, whatever. And it's uh, taking the opportunity to learn more about things like that that have always been passions, but I didn't necessarily know a lot about them. One of his recent ones was a, um, a fair in Spokane, which I barely maybe didn't even know had a World's Fair. And so that was a, a really interesting one. He also turns out to be an ex-Disney employee and Disney historian, so uh, occasionally he'll do a story on that. And uh, I actually joined him one weekend where he did a talk on NASA and the World's Fairs. Uh, so we, we got together and we did a, you know, a joint Zoom presentation about the, mostly about the 64-65 World's Fair, uh, where NASA had a very big presence because Mercury was ongoing. We were preparing for uh, Gemini and Apollo 
programs at the same time. And there was a big space park uh, as part of the fair out in Flushing Meadows in, in New York. Um, so I, I continue to do things with that. Uh, yesterday, I actually got a brand new handmade scale model of one of the pavilions from the 64 World's Fair. It was a General Electric uh, pavilion called Progress Land. And you may know it if you've been to Disney World uh, Magic Kingdom in recent years, it's the carousel of progress there. Um, but I, I know this guy in Florida who actually hand builds these things at one to 600 scale and he painstakingly puts together and they're ma marvelous to put together. Now, so one of my hobbies was trying to figure out good places to display this because they have other memorabilia and a model of the Ford Pavilion from that fair too. And I'm kind of running out of space on the area that I've got, um, but I'm still collecting things. Um, so I, I, that's still ahead of me to, to figure out a good way to display the, the extra material. So you're a passionate enthusiast of the World's Fair, which I find extremely admirable. I found it so interesting. Would I be correct in assuming that you attended the fair and if so, like held with you? But if not, is that an event that inspired you like as a person and a future scientist? Oh, very, very, very much so. Um, I was about 12 years old. The New York World's Fair in 64, 1965, was held over two summers. It was only open during the summer, about six months each time. So six months in the summer of 64, six months in the summer of 65. And my family was in Connecticut at the time, so a couple hours away. And I think we went down there maybe three times each summer. And it was just an incredible experience. It's, you have to remember that the universe was different back then there was no internet you didn't hear about all these great inventions that were happening right away you know you might be lucky and see something in a magazine but um here was a place where you could go and not only be exposed to cultures from around the world because it was a world's fair and a lot of countries had displays there but all of the big corporations had uh pavilions and exhibits there where you could see some of the earliest color televisions you could see uh, actually something equivalent to this that they call the picture phone just actually didn't quite take off right after 64, but you know, we're finally uh, there. And uh, especially the car companies were huge back then. And they put on these massive displays where you could ride through and see colonies on the moon, uh, cities under the ocean, all this stuff. And, and, it, and it was all of the mindset that science, technology is going to make our life wonderful in the future. And so it pulled you into to STEM or STEAM type ideas because there was art uh, there as well um, and, and got you excited about the future of it. So yeah, it was definitely one of the things that inspired me to go into science and to astronomy in particular. I think it was that in uh, combination with, of course, the real space program that was going on at the time. Uh, it was sci-fi in general, both in movies and TV and Star Trek in particular. Um, all of these things came together to get me interested uh, in astronomy and following it up. And it was actually, there was a particular Star Trek episode where they mentioned something about a, a star. Um, and I thought, I wonder if that's a real star. You know, they just make that up like they did a lot of other things in the story. And I went to the library, because no internet, uh, pulled out an astronomy book, found out it was a real star, and that they actually had you know, tried to be uh, real to that degree. Uh, but when I did that, in the process of doing that, I had an astronomy textbook in front of me. And I was seeing all these absolutely amazing pictures of the sky. Uh, and I got hooked right there. And 
never really turned around after that. Um, so I had a lot of influences on it, but it was that one episode that actually got me, you know, actually flipped the switch and got me into pursuing uh, astronomy and space science as a career. Mm. Uh, Dr. Carpenter, on, on that note, if I were to say the name Space Park, what comes to mind? It's the, the, uh, the, the park at the New York World's Fair um, behind the science, the science center and, and remnants of Space Park still exist today, but it's the display area behind the Museum of Science uh, in Flushing Meadows Corona Park, um, where they had a display of the, the current rockets and capsules and things from there. It was interesting. I, I posted a picture on Facebook last night of the, the model I got of the, the GE Pavilion from the fair and immediately got a note from a friend who won, runs a place called, uh, well, he runs a, a site that sells space memorabilia. And he said, I have this shirt you might be interested in. He sent me a picture and it's a shirt of Space Park. Mm. I was like, okay, I may have to actually go for that one. <laughs> You're like, yes, please. <laughs> That's, you know, the universe is converging here. He, you know, he sent me a picture of the shirt last night. You ask about it now. Uh, it's a sign. Yeah, maybe I should buy a model of Space Park, too. I haven't gotten that. <laughs> I think so. So you talk a lot about kind of the A in STEAM, because they're just actually starting to incorporate it, but it sounds like it was actually really influential for you, like even at a young age. So the fact that it's taking so long to recognize it and include it, it's kind of surprising, I mean, I think to all of us. But like, how do you see the realms of science, fantasy, and art all fitting together? Interesting question. Um, yeah, first of all, I, I will say that uh, even though I had some interest early on, it really hasn't taken off even for me until you know maybe the last ten years or so. So it's it's not just in general. It took a long time to to catch on, but even for myself, you know, I didn't get as fully invested in it um, until recently. Um, but in particular with Hubble, we have started encouraging this kind of interaction because they really do complement each other. That they're different people who are really into art, people who are really into science, have different worldviews. So you can get a different perspective on things. And sometimes that helps you learn more about you know, whatever it is you're looking at. So we have done a, a couple of exhibits now where we've uh, gotten together. Uh, with the art community and they have put out calls for proposals from artists and say, okay, we're going to do this exhibit where we've got 10 rooms and each room is going to have pictures from Hubble or models or whatever. You know, one will have planets in our solar system, one will have nebula, one will have exploding stars, one will have the edge of the universe kind of stuff. What would you as an artist do and what medium do you want to do it in to help interpret and understand this? And when we've done this, we've gotten literally hundreds of uh, proposals and picked the best one for each room, for each topical area. And it's been fascinating. People have done paintings, they've done plaster sculpture, they've done ceramics, uh, almost any media, artistic medium you can think of have been used. And you go through and you look at this and it's like, okay, you know, it, it just makes you appreciate things better. And the other thing it does good for us, we'd like to reach as many people as we can through our outreach events. When you have an art exhibit, you pull in a whole different group of people that might not ever pay any attention to you otherwise. But when they get there, they don't just appreciate the art. They love to see, you know, these gorgeous pictures and realize that some of what Hubble does is as much art as it is science because uh, of how incredibly beautiful the universe is 
and the fact that Hubble's been able to catch that. So I, I think the synthesis, the, the synergy between the two can both inspire artists to do more art and it can inspire scientists to create better observatories, better machines to, to look even further with, with higher quality. If you wanna look at one of the more close relationships we've had over the year, uh, mentioned Star Trek before, Star Trek and the science community and NASA in particular have had a very close relationship. We've had folks for the last 50 years, well, people who do special effects or writing whatever will come to NASA, look at what we're doing, look at maybe some future designs we're thinking of, and then go back and create some projection of that for what might happen in the future. At the same time, uh, a lot of folks like me grew up with one generation or another of Star Trek and got inspired to go into science and technology and uh, went out and you know went in and did some actual science based on having been inspired by the fiction. So the fiction inspires and informs the science, but the science also informs people doing the fiction to make it a little more realistic or just to get some crazy ideas uh, from folks like me that might want to build this insane 30 element interferometer in space I'm like oh yeah maybe we should you know put something like that uh, in a future episode although obviously something more grandiose in, in, in most cases uh, we even had um, uh, one of the artists that uh, worked on doing behind the scenes uh, work and doing map paintings and things for star trek named rick sternbach he's a, basically a space artist, space artist by trade uh, he came out on the 50th anniversary of the first premiere of Star Trek and gave a talk at NASA Goddard uh, about the synergies between uh, the two and how they've changed over the years. And, uh, you know, one of the, the better attended colloquia of the year because there is so much interest on it. And then when you ask in an audience like that, you discover, well, maybe half the people here have been inspired by Trek one version or another, even though you, know, you might not have, you might only know that 10 or 20 of them that you actually knew were Trek folks. There's a lot of us hiding around all over. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it seems definitely like that idea of, um, you know, life imitating art almost. And that, you know, art is kind of crucial to the advancement maybe of these um, scientific discoveries or developments. Um, and it, it's actually really interesting. Our last person that we had on our podcast, Dr. Gonzalez, she actually is incredibly fascinated with Star Trek as well. Um, ah. And, you know, I'd like to say, or I'd like to think that we do our research here at Full Steam Ahead. And a little bird, you may have told us that you attended Comic-Con. Um, is this true? <laughs> Not quite. Uh, it's always been a desire to, to do that. I've, I've been to uh, Star Trek Las Vegas and Dragon Con in Atlanta, which is sort of the East Coast version of, of Comic-Con in San Diego. But I've never actually gotten to, to Comic-Con out there closest I came is to go out there for a science meeting that happened the week after Comic-Con. Mm. And I tell you, it pained the soul to look up on the walls and see these signs for, you know, this panel discussion or whatever. Oh, I just missed it. But um, no, but I do, uh, I've tried to go, I, I do a lot of smaller sci-fi conventions, the Star Trek Las Vegas and, and Dragon Con um, are the biggest that I've ever gone to. And that's, that's pretty insane. But it's, it's always interesting to see at those uh, conferences, conventions, that the people who go there, there's a, a sizable fraction that really are interested in science as well. It's not just coming to see the movie stars or to see the latest 
you know, on your favorite show, uh, DragonCon in particular, it's five or six day event and they have programming from nine or 10 in the morning till like midnight and they've got multiple parallel sessions and on the weekends there's parties and stuff going on. But we had a, a science session there that went from 10 in the morning every day till midnight, just continuously on every hour and a half, there was another talk. And even on Friday and Saturday night, when all the parties and things were going on, there were people packed in that room right till midnight. And it was very warming, heartwarming to see that. And mind you, there's 70,000 people there and we didn't have 70,000 people in there, but we had a, a nice, solid uh, crowd of folks doing that. So it's very rewarding to do that. And you know, we talk to folks like that, give them a little more information and they can go out and be our apostles as it were, you know, talking to others and getting them excited about it. So there's a, a good amount of leverage uh, that you get out of uh, talking. You know, some people may say, well, you know, these people are already interested in science, you don't need them. But no, but if you can give them more information, then they can go out and tell our story um, even better. So that's, um, I think, it's a, you know, it's a fun thing to do. Oftentimes we'll have little ask the sciences tables or something down in the lobby. So it's not just talking over a big audience. Sometimes you get to sit there and let people come up and, and chat with you. And there, you know, if you, if you manage over a weekend to inspire one person to go into science or technology, it's, it's made your whole uh, visit worthwhile, in my opinion. Uh, and sometimes you reach a lot more people than that um, just because of the way it's set up. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the unfortunate thing, I mean, there are tons of unfortunate things about the ongoing pandemic, but I think one of the things is that those conferences, those really big gatherings of people where like you get to bond and share and just network basically is not possible. And I think I think everyone's done a really good job adapting. Like you're doing a lot of telecom meetings. You're inspiring us by being here today. So thank you. But I think that there's going to be lots of stuff impacted long-term and how do you think like space travel and observation will be impacted long-term by COVID-19? The hope is that long-term it, it won't have too much of an effect short-term. Certainly. I mean, you probably saw yesterday the James Webb telescope launch has been delayed uh, because of the launch just because the people in there working on the hardware haven't been able to get in there uh, to do it. That those folks are now starting to go back. People like me, are fortunate in being able not to have to physically go in, but the people that are actually putting hardware together or testing it, you know, do need to. And we're finally getting to the point in most locations where we can do that very, very carefully. And it goes slower because you still have social distancing inside the, um, the, the factories or the aerospace companies or in the labs at Goddard, but it is going forward. So that there will be delays like that. Um, we're hoping with the Roman Space Telescope that maybe we can make up any delay. We've currently been delayed by a couple of months by having to shut down the detector development and things like that. That's up and going now, and hopefully um, you know, that won't change a whole lot because of it. Um, the only, you know, I guess one of the concerns is how long does it take to get through this? How, how uh, in what shape does the economy come through and you know, make sure that there's still the, the money to fund this kind of thing when we get out the other end. Um, at some level, we you know hope that it um, people are in, inspired or you know had a chance to sit back a little bit during the uh, the pandemic and and you know get excited about this kind of thing. I think well you know we ought to be doing some good and exciting and inspiring things in addition to 
having to deal with the tough spots in the world. We, we have found, you know, in part this because people are around in, in home more, that we're getting very uh, good response to the outreach that we're doing. I mean, not, it's not just events like this, but the stuff we put out on social media, the videos and posts are getting way more uh, views and, and likes and things than we were getting pre-COVID. And we've always, we've been on an upward trend pretty continuously, but it was a sizable jump, um, you know, the last couple of months. And it's sticking. It's not just people coming in once or twice. So once they find out it's there, they're hungry for content. Um, and I think they, they like what they're seeing. And it's, it's not just Hubble. It's all of the, the different missions uh, out there. If you can put something new and exciting and expiring uh, out there, um, people will listen to it. So there may be some good effects long term. It's not to downplay, of course, all of the uh, difficulties and, and negative impacts now. But um, one mistake we don't want to make is just to focus on how horrible things are. We have to keep a perspective that there are still good things happening and still good people out there like you guys who are trying to, to make our future better. Um, and you know, I encourage you to do that. You know, be sensible, you know, make sure you wear your masks and social distance and all that, but don't, don't feel afraid to reach for the stars, as we say. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, it's definitely heartening to hear that, um, you know, even if it is slowed down, there's still progress being made on these, you know, incredible projects. Um, and, and on that topic, for all that the Hubble Space Telescope has done and is currently doing, um, what do you think the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope or Space Telescope will do differently or do better? That's an interesting comparison. They're complementary to each other. You know, there's no sense in which Roman replaces Hubble. Actually, Webb doesn't even replace Hubble, both Webb and Nancy Grace Roman telescopes work mostly in the infrared, whereas Hubble concentrates on ultraviolet and optical lights. Ultraviolet is bluer than what the eye sees, bluer than what gets through the atmosphere. So Hubble looks at that regime and into the optical that your eye does see. Both Webb and Roman look at a little bit of the optical and then out into the infrared, which is redder than what the eye sees. It's more of what we feel is heat generally. So that's one difference uh, between Hubble and the, the, the newer two telescopes. Uh, Webb, like Hubble, is going to zero in very tightly on small areas of the sky, uh, but it'll do it at a different color, at different wavelengths. So that's why I say Webb is not a direct sequel to Hubble, but a complementary follow-on observatory. W first, sorry, Nancy Grace Roman Telescope <laughs> is different from both Hubble and the Webb in that it has a very broad view of the sky, what we call the wide field of view. So instead of zeroing in on a small part of the sky, it looks at a region that's 100 times larger in extent than Hubble. So uh, a picture that Roman could do with a single photograph, single exposure, would have required 100 separate exposures from Hubble to be taken and pieced together. So that's, it means we're gonna really enable wide area surveys of the sky as opposed to study of individual objects, but it's still at the same resolution as Hubble. So we're not giving up the detail, but we're getting a hundred times more in a single picture. So that's extremely exciting. And it's why it enables studies of dark energy, of the changing expansion rate of the universe, it expand, uh, allows us to 
point the telescope toward the galactic center and search for microlensing that's caused by planets passing in front of stars uh, that are behind uh, the planet from our perspective. To, to, to do that and see any significant number, you need a very crowded area of the sky uh, where you get a lot of objects because only some of them are going to be lined up so the planet is in your line of sight. If the planet is going around the star like this, you don't see any occultation. It doesn't block any of the light from the star. But if it's going around like this, when it gets here, it blocks the light from getting to you. So you need to look at a lot of stars so that the small number that actually are in that right geometry um, that you get a significant sample. So with this wide field of view and looking at the galactic center where there's just millions of stars anyways, um, that's, that's how you are, are able to do that kind of study. So we'll search for exoplanets using that kind of technique. We'll study the expansion rate of the universe and try to figure out what the heck dark energy is. And, and dark for those in the audience who may not know doesn't necessarily refer to any particular color or anything. It's dark as in mysterious. We, you know, dark in that it's, it's unknown, unseen. We, the only way we know is there is that it's pushing objects apart as the universe expands, instead of slowing down as gravity tries to bring it together in the last five billion years or so, it's actually sped up. So it's kind of like if you took an apple, threw it in the sky, you expect it to go up, slow down and come back down to you. In this case, you throw the apple up and instead of slowing down and coming back to you, it just keeps going faster and faster. So it's completely non-intuitive. Non it's not something that I think any of us expected, um, you know, back before it was discovered. And it actually took quite a while to convince the community that it was real. You know, multiple experiments had to be done. It's like, it's really doing this. So we've got something wrong. Either we're missing a piece of physics and, you know, we need a new field of physics or we're not properly understanding, you know, general or special relativity that we haven't taken it far enough. There's something else uh, beyond that. So it's kind of exciting about in astronomy, it seems like every time you really start getting comfortable and you think, you know, there's a lot of detail to figure out, but we kind of understand the basics. Well, here, well, you know, the universe is accelerating and going faster instead of slowing down. I mean, that's not just a small detail you're trying to finish out. You, I mean, that's a major perspective switch. And, um, you know, although there are ideas for what might be doing this, uh, you know, maybe the vacuum isn't void of energy. There's a zero point energy or something that only becomes important when you have a long distance involved. Um, we don't really know what's causing it. So we need folks like you to go out there and, you know, have fresh eyes, think differently. You know, somewhere we're stuck, we're, we're thinking wrong, or we either need a new theory or we're just looking at the existing theories not quite right. And we need somebody to come in and say, oh, well, it's this because, you know, you forgot about that or whatever. And so far, we're not finding that. Uh, we're hoping with Roman that we'll get more data on how exactly the expansion is accelerating and then be able to give that to some theoretical cosmologists and say, okay, this is what we see, make a model that explains it. And we're just hoping that by getting more and more constraints, that'll help the theoreticians figure out uh, what it is. Yeah, and you're talking about a new perspective on just approaching, I mean, space and astronomy in general. I think a really recent, I mean, relatively recent development is the emergence of private space companies and having that kind of fresh set of eyes as opposed to NASA. What are your thoughts on this new development? I think it's good. Uh, I think it, it 
it helps to generate excitement. I mean, some some folks in the field might have laughed at um, you know having a Tesla go into space, but you can't argue that it grabbed people's attention and it got them excited about going into space again and didn't hurt anything as near as we can tell. So if it works, you know, it's it's hard to to argue with it. Um, I must say it's been very special to see some of the uh, early flights, uh, particularly with SpaceX, where the lower stage, the first stage of the rocket, comes back down to Earth instead of just falling in the ocean and actually lands on its tail fins. That's how people like me grew up. In the 50s and 60s, Buck Rogers, Space Angels, Thunderbird, they all had rockets that came up and then landed on their fins. And then we went in and did, you know, the, the real space program and nobody did that. It's like, wait a minute, we feel cheated. We, we know it's supposed to be this other way. And now it's happening. I mean, it's been, you know, we really thought that was just never going to happen. You know, people decided it, it wasn't energy efficient or, or whatever. And, you know, not only is it happening, but you see these rockets come back and they land on a barge that's barely larger than your house. Um, and it's, it's just spectacular to see that. It's like, you know, well, with, you know, the other thing we always missed from my childhood is jetpacks. We all thought we were going to have jetpacks. And you see those a little bit, but, you know, maybe they're not too far behind. I mean, yeah. usable technology is the way of future sustainable living, especially with everyone um, being increasingly environmentally conscious. I think it's really important to be on the up and coming if you're a private company trying to get an edge. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I guess to also follow up on the, the general question there, I, it's going to be interesting to see what they can do. I, I like the competition between the companies and the fact that they are bringing a new energy. And I, and I hope we get back to the moon and on to Mars. There's always, of course, lots of arguments about which way to, to go, and which should happen first. But, um, you know, some level I've been disappointed over the years that we went to the moon and then just stopped. Um, one of the other pivotal films that I grew up on uh, in the 60s, of course, was 2001 A Space Odyssey, which had these wonderful imagery of large rotating space stations in Earth orbit and standard shuttles from Pan Am flying you back and forth and then uh, tugs going to the moon, you know, little, little round shuttles and then a base on the moon. And back in the late 60s, we all thought that was happening and it was going to happen by 2001, plus or minus a bit. So it was very sad to see that we backed away from that uh, after the Apollo program. Um, of course, I loved the shuttle and everything that it did and the fact that it was allowed us to go up and service Hubble five times and turning the Hubble mission from a, a disaster into the most um, productive telescope uh, in space. Um, so there's no, uh, I'm by no means casting any aspersions on the shuttle, but we should have in my personal opinion, um, as they say, this is not the not, not speaking for the agency, but my personal opinion, you know, we should have also continued our reach out into space, and you know, we should have a a large uh, a larger station, uh, space station in orbit. Well, we do have one there with people on it. Sometimes people forget that, but we you know, should have this big pinwheel thing that they showed there, and we should have a base on the moon, and should be getting ready to go to Mars. Uh, although that's always probably been harder than people have thought. Um, but we should still be working on it. And again, it'll doing that kind of thing will help inspire the next generations of, of STEAM folks, because um, that definitely is going to inspire the artists as well as the, uh, the technical folks. 
Um, but I think people sometimes undersell or don't understand how much that, how much good that does for inspiring people to do all sorts of things. And, you know, going to the moon or Mars doesn't just inspire people to go to the moon and Mars. It inspires people to do great things in medicine or you know, technology in general, uh, just the excitement of it and the thought that, yeah, maybe you can do things that look hard. I mean, Artemis 2024, the possibility of lunar colonies from the European Space Agency in 2050, that's insane. That's in our lifetime. That's crazy. I don't know. <laughs> it fascinates me. I've done tons of research on it. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, I certainly hope I live long enough to see it. I don't know. 2050 is pushing it for me, but uh, <laughs> but I, I keep uh, hoping to, to see that. But I, you know, I can't complain to you over the course of my career. Was, you know, we've gone from... Um, you know, black and white TVs and not being in space at all to um, you know, getting to the moon and then uh, developing the shuttle and launching all these incredible space observatories that, um, you know, would have been hardly imaginable back in the, uh, the 50s and before. So it's been a, it's been a wild ride and uh, you know, I've enjoyed being with Hubble since the mid 80s at this point. I originally worked on it said I would do it for a couple of years and then move on. And it's been so incredibly captivating um, that I've stayed with it over the years. And I've always had enough time in my schedule to work on other things, um, you know, like Roman and working on uh, future mission concepts like Stellar Imager. Um, and that's key to staying fresh and challenged. But things are also evolving all the time, even on a 30-year-old spacecraft flight with uh, like Hubble. There are new challenges every year, and uh, we're having to get inventive on how to keep it going now that we're no longer servicing it with the space shuttle. And uh, it's fun and challenging and still producing just absolutely wonderful um, material for everybody. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we actually have some of these young students who are um, you know, watching these launches in our grade, and um, some of them might be wondering how to get involved. So this question comes from Carlos from our Full Steam Ahead Instagram. Um, and it's, what is your piece of advice that you would give to a high schooler interested in entering the STEAM field, especially astronomy? Well, first of all, in terms of, of classes, as much math and physics uh, as you can get, and maybe surprisingly, as much skill as you can get with writing, because uh, an astronomer's, a scientist's, engineer's life is filled with writing proposals and papers and things too. And you have to be able to write, you have to be able to communicate in public as well. So it's, it's not just writing, it's speaking. So, you know, get there when you're asked to give a, a talk to your class or something and you're scared to death, just do it. Cause by the time you get into a, a career, you'll be talking in front of much larger, more frightening audiences than just a, a 30 person class. Um, I hope we're not that frightening. Uh, well, not yet. I, mean, I, I keep waiting for the frightening uh, question there. But um, in addition to that, I would start looking at getting internships. And it doesn't have to be at NASA, but look for internships. And generally, there are some available at the high school level, and they're more prevalent as you get into undergrad years. But don't, don't necessarily think you can't do it now uh, as part of high school. Uh, NASA has a very broad internship program at all the centers, so you don't necessarily have to go across the country uh, you know, to come in and work at Goddard or am. There are uh, facilities, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory in, in Los Angeles and uh, Ames up near San Francisco, and, um, uh, facility in Huntsville, Alabama. So there are all, there's 10 NASA centers and a couple of 
research centers where you can do these fellowships and you go in there and it's good for two reasons. It's, it's good because you get to meet people who might be important to you later when you're asking for jobs. But even more importantly, it gives you a chance to get exposed to what actually goes on. And that gives you a chance to find out whether it's really for you or not. I mean, some people come in, do it and get super excited and say, yes, this is everything I thought it was be, and I'm going to go full speed ahead in this. And other people try it and say, oh my God, what was I thinking? And, you know, it's disappointing, but it's important because it tells you to go and, and explore other options. So you can do that either directly, um, you know, at NASA or in, you know, universities or whatever, but you can also do it in other topical areas. And, you know, you may decide those other areas are not good for you and end up uh, back in this. So internships are very important. I actually uh, had one with the Viking mission to Mars. This is going to give away my age now, um, but I was at Jet Propulsion Lab in California during the first soft landing on Mars from the Viking mission in the summer of 1976. Um, and I didn't obviously go into planetary science as a result of that, but it did encourage me to uh, continue in science and astronomy in general. And I ended up in astrophysics, but I don't think that's a failure of their system. It still got me ex excited to go into a, a STEAM area, just didn't happen to be you know, Mars or, or, or planets. Uh, I went out into a, the, the broader universe, but there's nothing like sitting there co-mingling with your colleagues of your own age, but also getting exposed to some of the senior people that are running the missions. And that's crucial, I think, uh, for helping you to decide what to do. And uh, of course, it's gonna look great on applications down the road. It's kind of like a personal follow-up. Like you talk a lot about your experience, like you know, you're, you wanna be an astronomer, you have this internship. Did you have any hardships trying to enter the field? Any like, could be classified as failures or challenges to overcome? I think the biggest obstacle, um, things went, pretty well in the early years. When I got into undergraduate school, I was at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. The biggest obstacle there was that I got into the school and then there was an attempt by some folks at the um, university to basically close out the astronomy department and have it take over, have it taken over by the math department. So it might have disappeared right after I got there and that would have been bad. But there was, uh, uh, we fought back and it was a very small department at the time which was one reason it was ripe for poaching. Um, so they actually had us really kind of young and experienced folks go up and testify to the board of directors as to why it was important to keep astronomy at the university. Um, so that was growing up really fast, but we got past that crisis. It stayed and I was able to get both a bachelor's and a master's there. Um, and then I went, uh, applied to various schools to, to get a doctorate, to get a, a PhD in astronomy. And the challenge there was uh, that I actually got into a, a number of very good schools and was just kind of looking for the best financial deal and the best opportunities for, for doing science. Um, and I got accepted and the, all the acceptances came with this letter, which clearly had been agreed upon in the community that basically said, uh, we like you, we'll admit you if you want to come, but there's no jobs in astronomy right now for new people, so you might want to consider a different field. Now, I could have gone off and gotten really depressed and you know, changed fields, but I looked at that and said, this is perfect. They're scaring everybody away. By the time I get through, you know, there might, it'll be better. I mean, there might not be a, a, you know, a, a huge 
increase. But if they scare enough people away, it'll certainly be better. So I'm going to do it because this is what I really want to do. And I did that. And then in the end, it, it worked out. The only caveat was that several of us who entered in that time frame took our time finishing because at least you could you know work you could do uh teaching associateships and whatever and you know put food on the table and whatever while the market was improving and then um finally you know the market got better enough and there was a whole bunch of people that started graduating helped in our particular case by the fact that a new department chairman came in and took a look at how long some of the people had been in the department and said okay this has gone too far anyone who's been past their um uh, qualifying exam when you, after you take your classes going for a phd you take a qualifying exam that covers all of astronomy and basically shows that you're ready to go out and do the research phase uh, of your phd and he basically said okay anyone who's passed their qualifying exam more than five years ago if you don't finish in the next year you have to take it over again and that is the last thing that anybody wants to do because it's the most terrifying part of your entire career uh, preparation is having to know all of astronomy and be able to converse with a room full of, of reviewers about it so if you look at ohio state's astronomy department you see this big blip of graduations a year, a year later um, but once i got past that once i was able to not worry about, I'm mean, worried about the jobs, but once I didn't get stopped by that, uh, things went relatively smoothly. And I was luckier than a lot of people in terms of getting my, my first postdoc and then getting a job um, after that. One thing that was a little surprising when I was looking for my final job or for my job after the postdoc, um, so I probably should have figured out sooner that where I belonged was at NASA. I actually, until relatively uh, close to that time, I was still thinking I'd probably work at a university and I'd be a professor, do teaching and research on the side. Um, but I actually enjoy more working on the projects. There's no, there's no free lunch. There are very few jobs where you can just go and do pure research. If you're at a university, you have to teach and do research on the, you know, in addition to that, if you're at a NASA center or aerospace center, you've got to do company work, uh, program work like I do on Hubble and Roman. And then, you know, research is complementary to that because you know you got to pay your bills basically by by doing the, the programmatic or the, the teaching work um, but looking back at it I actually enjoy the program work um, being a project scientist on the missions like I am my job is to represent the interest of the astronomical community and the other researchers to the project management and make sure that in addition to cost and schedule they worry about science impact of their decisions and you know they're good people and they try to do that but it's helpful for them to have daily contact with scientists who are in touch with the community and know what the community needs and, 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 and wants uh, in going through here. And I enjoy that very much. So in retrospect, it was kind of like, yeah, yes, of course I ended up, I, I should have be, be at NASA. Why, why didn't I figure that out sooner? But, you know, my career path just um, ended up going that way very, very cleanly. My, my postdoc was actually at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And a year into that, I got asked if I would be interested in going over to Ball Aerospace Corporation, which also was in Boulder, and help them uh, calibrate one of the new detectors that was going into a first-generation Hubble instrument. And my advisor said, you know, I know when you're a postdoc, you're supposed to just zero in on the research and don't let anything bother you, write papers, you know, 
add them up on, on your resume. But you know, if you do this, maybe it'll go feed somewhere. Um, and that probably in the end was the most critical decision I, I ever made to, to do that because doing that, doing the job well, you know, impressing people. And then it was a matter of time before I got invitation to, to go and, and actually get involved in the project work. If I had said, no, I'm gonna sit here in my corner and do the research because that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, I might not be at NASA today. So it was, um, I guess one thing I always tell folks when I'm talking about careers is don't be afraid to try something a little out of the box. Don't feel that you have to do the traditional route. If you see an opportunity and it's interesting, try it for a while. You can always, you know, back out of it. But, you know, if I had been too scared or reluctant to, to make this tweak to the normal path, um, you know, I'd be missing a lot. That has been absolutely wonderful since then. Mm. Well, I mean, wrapping this wonderful conversation up, and when I say wonderful, like it's truly incredible the things that you've talked about today. Um, but is there anything that our, our audience at home should be kind of like looking out for, like projects or, or developments that are coming from you in the next couple of weeks or months? Well, you know, next couple of weeks is really asking a lot for a new project <laughs> to come out. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, personally, I'm involved in two proposals that are going in shortly, one to to do some research using data from uh, NASA archives, um, another to propose looking at do some concept development for an observatory on the moon. Uh, so if you see, well, you probably won't see much on the first one, but if you see something uh, from the NIAC program about building an interferometer moon, you'll know where it started. But um, that's, that's very competitive. Most NASA proposals are very competitive, so it's perhaps unlikely. Um, but who knows, it, it could happen and we'll keep trying. Um, and one thing is, of course, don't give up. Uh, like with Hubble, with the, the mirror problem in its early years, a lot of people were depressed and thought it was the end of Hubble, but um, very inventive people just, you know, ground down, got ready, put their pens to paper and figured out a solution. And we went on, so don't don't be put off by challenges, even if they look very very hard at the time, because often you can find uh, ways around it. So persistence, confidence, uh, not giving up are, are are all very big and important things. Um, I think in this field, um, there is a new rover that's going to be headed up to Mars uh, shortly. Uh, so that's exciting. Back to my uh, my origins uh, on the uh, program. Actually, we have. Uh, we're not doing in-person colloquia nowadays, but on Monday, we're doing our first engineering colloquium in a virtual sense. And I was lucky to get a hold of uh, Pat Stratt, Dr. Pat Stratt, who was uh, one of the people on the original uh, labeled release experiment on the Viking lander. And this was an experiment that was designed to determine if there's life on Mars by popping some soil into a, a little portable lab and looking at, at the outgassing. And 40 years later, it's still controversial. Uh, she and others think it detected life. Other people will say, no, you just saw a chemical reaction. And there is still a lively discussion about this 40 years later. So we're very excited to see that uh, coming in. So I need, I've followed Mars missions ever since, um, you know, that summer of 76, and have been absolutely fascinated by Opportunity and, and the other rovers. And this new one is gonna be even more powerful. So keep an eye on that. Uh, there'll be continuing missions to the outer planets, um, 
as well. Hopefully we'll get a mission to Europa, see if there's anything underneath the, uh, the frozen ice crust there. Um, there's, there's, there's so much going on. Uh, the Webb Telescope is launching, I think, around Halloween in 2021. The Roman Telescope is aiming for a mid-2025-ish, um, 2026 timeframe for launch. So those are both things that are looking forward to. But there's a lot of exciting things going on. There may be a slight delay in stuff going up, but um, a lot of remote sensing things in, in astrophysics, a lot of planetary uh, probes are, are still heading up there. Um, so just keep your eyes open. We're trying very hard to get as much info out there on social media. Um, you can follow Hubble at nasa.gov slash Hubble. Uh, Roman is nasa.gov slash Roman. Uh, we're on, uh, but those are the websites, but we're also on Facebook at NASA Hubble, at NASA Roman, uh, and on Twitter and Instagram with, I think, the same handles. So uh, if you want to keep in touch, see what's happening, those are, are good places to, uh, to start. Well, Dr. Carpenter, it truly was a pleasure to talk with you today. So thank you so much for taking the time. And like Dr. Carpenter said, be sure to check out at NASA Roman and at NASA Hubble on Facebook and Instagram. And also check out Dr. Carpenter on Instagram at KenAstro1804 and on YouTube at Ken Carpenter. Some of my favorite posts of his include his convention walkthroughs and, of course, space updates of all shapes and sizes. The Echo Cosmo, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure. We've learned so much from you and look forward to see what um, you're going to be doing next. The field of astronomy is so exciting. It's always changing. I'm personally very interested. So. Well, this has been a, a wonderful chance to, to chat with you both. I uh, understand this is only the, your second interview in the series, so I really look forward to seeing uh, what you do down the line. I must say I was a, a little worried when I found out I was following an astronaut candidate. It's like, well, we'll do our best here to match that, but uh, I hope you can keep up uh, you know, getting interesting folks like this and inspiring other people. But, you know, you might think you're inspiring your, your age group and younger, you can inspire some of us older folks too, just by bringing a fresh perspective uh, from things. And I, I can't tell you how much it means to see other people, especially younger folks, get excited about this stuff. And that helps you get past the, the times where you're mired in bureaucracy or you know trying to fight through some silly rules or whatever. It's like, now this is why we, we fight to, to do um, what we do. And it's, uh, it really does excite us, inspire us, and it, it keeps us going uh, you know, at times where we might otherwise want to give up. We don't really want to give up because we're having too much fun, but uh, it's, it's wonderful to have the shot in the arm that you guys give us when you get all excited and you know, show that you appreciate and understand what's out there, or at least beginning to. All right, well, we will keep on fighting and see you next time on the Full Steam Ahead podcast. Be sure to follow the Full Steam Ahead podcast on Instagram for the latest info on upcoming guests, as well as Q&A opportunities, where we take questions directly from our audience and pose them to our podcast guests at Full Steam Ahead podcast on Instagram.